Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. He's the man who started charging us for even carry-on bags, and he's not sorry about it. Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. And he's the first guy who the networks turn to when airline news breaks. After the first three guys who they really wanted weren't available, of course. NPR here and now transportation analyst Seth Kaplan. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about the parent company of British Airways, Iberia, Aer Lingus, Whaling, and Level, buying yet another European airline and what it means for all of us. We'll listen to a real customer complaint against an airline and discuss whether they have a point or are they just whining in our Fine or Wine segment. And we'll take your questions, but first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, International Airlines Group, or IAG, that's the parent company of British Airways, Iberia, Aer Lingus, Whaling, Level, am I forgetting any others, is about to add one more airline to that long list. It's Spain's Air Europa. IAG is buying it for a billion euros if regulators approve. Now, this isn't a giant airline, but it's not a tiny one either. It has 66 airplanes, including big A330s that you'll see in places like New York, Miami, and lots of airports in Central and South America. I think some Americans know it as the airline they can sometimes use their Delta Sky Miles on to get to Europe when it seems impossible to use those miles for a flight on Delta or Air France KLM. Uh, ben, of course, when airlines merge, they'll always talk about how great a deal it is for consumers, but they wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't a good deal for themselves. What does Air Europa do for IAG? It does a number of things, Seth. Uh, first of all, it gives them much more heft into Latin America. Obviously, they have Iberia and British Airways themselves fly, flies into South and Central America. But with Air Europa, it gives them even more heft to that region, which is going to make them an even stronger competitor against their European um, airlines and the other alliances, of course. The other thing it does is it just builds out the bulk of IAG more. And you mentioned the word merger. And I'm not sure this really should be thought of as a merger as much as more of a conglomeration. The reason I say that is that IAG, as you know, is a holding company, which really means it's an administrative company that has underneath it operating companies. So the long list of airlines that you mentioned that I was trying to put a tune to in my head while you were saying that. each still operate as separate airlines in terms of brand and everything. British Airways and Iberia, their airplanes are painted differently. Their pilots have different contracts and things like that. And, you know, the employees of one probably get a paycheck that says a different than the other, things like that. So by adding Air Europa, they're adding another member to that family, but not forcing Air Europa to necessarily merge with the other airlines in the group. Now, Air Europa will benefit greatly from being part of that group, however, because at the IAG level, they can negotiate airplane deals, they can negotiate support deals. So being part of IAG will definitely make Air Europa more efficient, more cost efficient for sure, probably help them in all their negotiations with uh, buyers and things like that. So there's a lot of good in this for IAG. The one who's not that good for are the other alliances. 
Yeah, uh, and and important there that what you mentioned that's different in Europe. Often the airlines retain their brands after consolidation compared to in America, where you know with Delta and Northwest merge, eventually it's just uh, Delta. I mentioned speaking of alliances, Air Europa is a Delta partner. And one detail IAG has already revealed is that Air Europa will indeed leave the SkyTeam alliance. That's the alliance that features Delta, Air France, KLM, Alitalia uh, among European airlines. Uh, now again. This isn't a giant airline. This isn't like the way Latam shook up the alliance world by saying it'll leave one world after Delta announced its investment there. But uh, this does change the balance of power a bit. Yes, it does. And in an earlier episode, we talked about Delta's strategy to create joint ventures, airlines in Mexico and, and in Asia and such. So while they've been a partner of Air Europa, the fact that they didn't have that kind of relationship with them suggests, at least to me, that while they were important, they weren't quite that important (laughs) because Delta hadn't gone so far as to say, I'll put some money in Air Europa. I'll put uh, for that money, I'll get a seat on their board. I'll get some sway in the decisions they make like they have with other airlines. So while I'm sure Delta isn't happy, especially after their own big entry into Latin America that we talked about before, um, um, that, that uh, this is making one of their a competitive alliance, one world, much stronger in Latin America than they were. While they're certainly not happy about that, they didn't go so far as to say they were worried about losing Air Europa. And we should mention that kind of like how Latam is definitely leaving One World, but not necessarily joining SkyTeam. In this case, Air Europa is definitely leaving SkyTeam, assuming the deal finalizes, but not necessarily joining One World. Well, meanwhile, Ben, at Los Angeles International Airport, LAX as a lot of us know it, travelers have been waiting up to an hour for an Uber or Lyft ride. And that's even after they have to go to a new dedicated pickup lot. Imagine getting off a 12-hour flight from somewhere far away, clearing immigration and customs, and then still having to face that. Now, the waits are already improving somewhat, and all of this is supposed to just be temporary. But Ben, This shows how quickly the world has changed in terms of airport transportation design. That's exactly right, Seth. And it's changed for people, too. You know, I used to get off an airplane and you'd get on a bus to go to a a different building to get in your rental car and things like that. Now you just walk to the curb. And if your Uber app says the driver is more than five minutes away, you think, man, I can't wait this long. (laughs) (laughs) So, so no, that's right. And Airports are going through massive rebuilding, a lot of the big airports, airports like LAX, like JFK, LaGuardia, and others. And in that process, they got to think about these things, the fact that maybe they need less parking than they might have thought of because fewer people are driving the airport, but much larger ride-sharing pickup places. As you've traveled around like I, I'm sure you've noticed more and more airports are having airports rather than just pick your Uber or Lyft up at the curb are having dedicated pickup spots. They usually call them, you know, um, app rides or ride sharing or pickups or things like that, ride hailing, things like that. And at some airports, they're really well marked and they have lots of good spaces and the driver will even say, you know, I'm I'm between stalls eight and 10, you know, so come meet me there. Other ones are not quite that there yet, but it's getting there. In LAX's case, I'm not sure if this is an issue of 
you know, taxi drivers still making it different, difficult for Uber and there and therefore blocking things off. Or if it's just concrete, the fact that they need more places for these drivers to park and be close by, my guess is it's more of that ladder. And it's something that LAWA, which is the uh, Los Angeles World Airport Authority, which is sort of their authority, like the New York Port Authority runs the New York airports, for example, is worried about because certainly they airports not only want customers to have a good, easy experience, but they compete against other airports as gateways too for international travel, especially. I'd like to point out too, Seth, that this kind of change, you know, the disruptive change that ride sharing has created and what that means for airports isn't is far from the first time airports have had to deal with something like this. If you think back to 9-11 and the changes that made for airports, you had this airport in Pittsburgh that really visionary people prior to 9-11 had created Pittsburgh into almost a destination of itself. They'd put a whole shopping mall inside the airport, but it was inside security and it'd become a real interesting place. And people talked about Pittsburgh as a place to go and a fantastic place to fly into. Air mall, right? It was called Air Mall. Mall. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. And the combination of 9-11 and the security changes that happened, and then the U.S. Airways bankruptcy, which closed its hub at Pittsburgh following 9-11, those two things have made what used to be this big, innovative, huge airport into kind of a white elephant to some extent, standpoint. And it's taken, it took them 10, 20 years to recover from that to where now Pittsburgh is really competitive again. Uh, to, to attract air travel and are trying to build back up. Southwest has moved in there more and other airlines have. But the point is that, you know, airports are big entities and they're, they don't move like airplanes, right? And, and they, uh, but they've got to change with times. And sometimes those times are political things that happen that change security, which in the case of Pittsburgh, or just changes in the macro economy, like now ride sharing versus parking. And it's these aren't the last changes that airports are going to see. So whatever LAWA does to make Ubers work well for them, you know, five or 10 years from now, there's going to be some other change that they're going to have to react to that's different as well. Yeah, and airports uh, definitely have a longer-term planning horizon. There are a lot of things that are harder about being an airline than an airport, right? Airports don't generally go out of business. Somehow they somehow they manage. Uh, or you know, whereas, whereas airlines, um, in some ways, are, are are subject to market vicissitudes more. But on the other hand, uh, right? If if not as many people want to go to uh, Disney World, uh, Southwest Airlines can fly airplanes someplace other than Orlando. But the airport has to make its planning decisions for uh, for decades and build gates for those planes uh whether or not uh, they're they're gonna come new orleans by the way just opened a brand new airport terminal and that's one where you know this new billion dollar by all accounts beautiful terminal it doesn't have more gates than the former terminal the 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 big difference is that the old terminal was built for a pre-9-11 world like many airport terminals still in the U.S., and the new uh, terminal is is built for a modern world uh, where people spend more time after security because they get to the airport early because they're nervous about the TSA line, but you know, very often it doesn't take very long. And so, uh, you know, the old world, people got to the airport, they all had to talk to an agent at the ticket counter uh, to get their boarding card and all the rest of it. Now, a lot of people never talk to an agent. Uh, they show up with a printed boarding ca- pass or one on their phone, they, they go straight through. Uh, but then they spend a lot of time beyond security. So maybe you don't need as much uh, space before security, uh, land side as it's called, but you need more space after it, right? To not have things be cramped, air side and, and all of that. So yeah, uh, the, the world has changed 
in many ways, uh, both inside the airport in those regards and certainly outside the airport when it comes to uh, the ride hailing and, and, and all the rest of it. As you mentioned, Ben, it seems it's just a few years ago, airports worried about whether they had enough parking. Now, some of them have too much parking and uh, uh, not enough of, of the rest of it. I don't doubt, Seth, also that that new New Orleans airport behind the scenes has much better uh, implementations for modern security and for things like that, too, in terms of both people and bags and everything just being a lot safer and fewer loopholes and fewer ways to, you know, skirt around things. I'm sure a lot of that kind of design went into that new airport, too. Yeah, most bags, most checked bags were not screened before 9-11. Uh, and, and so airports have had to figure out a way to do that. Uh, you retrofit themselves, but you know you build the terminal now. Obviously, that, that's just that's just built in. Well, now Ben at, at cruise altitude here on our show, it's time to take a listener question. Here's Grant in Plainview, New York. Grant, my question is: I'm curious about some of these opaque discounted fares you see from time to time on flights like Priceline and Hopper. I know these types of deals are very common in the hotel space and perhaps even in the rental car space, but with airplanes being so full these days, I'm curious a little bit about the rationale from the airline's perspective. Frankly, I fully get the case for close-in bookings if the airline thinks the seat will go unsold. But I just scored a flight 11 months out from Maui to New York next summer, which is peak season for that route, at a pretty substantial savings versus the airline's listed price. So I'm just curious what they're looking to gain by discounting the seats this far in advance. And also, I was wondering if there's any validity to the claim that, in some cases, airlines sell a certain number of flights or seats to booking companies to sell at lower prices. Thanks. Excellent question there by Grant from Plainview. Uh, I, I know Plainview, Ben, as, as that town uh, in Long Island, kind of Nassau County, I believe, still with a giant mall. Uh, but apparently, it's also a place where people have good questions about airlines. So uh, uh, what, what, what can we tell Grant about this? Uh, why would an airline do that, offer seats um, that cheap and in that way, that far before departure? Well, those two things are related. They offer them cheap that way because they don't want to offer them that cheap in another way. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's all part of the revenue management process in airlines, which is around how you get your revenue and how you distribute your product. It's also about merchandising. So if you go to a grocery store, for example, you'll often see that, you know, at least if it's a bigger grocery store chain, they have their own branded things on the shelves, but nobody really thinks that, you know, Kroger or Safeway or someone is actually making those products. What happens is a regular manufacturer, someone you may actually know, makes the product and sells it under their brand. And then they also sell it what they call white label and let somebody else put their own label on it. And it's a different way to distribute the product. What airlines think about is imagine if you're Delta and you've got you know your nonstop flights from Atlanta to New York, which is clearly a big business route for them. And probably a lot of business people pay them very good average ticket values to fly that route. But you've got empty seats that you're forecasting that are going to be on that plane. The last thing you want to do is sell those flights cheap on your own website or through Expedia for Delta Airlines flight you know, 771 to New York. I don't even know if that's a number to do. <laughs> I'm sure it isn't, in fact. Um, but um, um, you, but they don't want to sell the flight cheap and have some business person who would have paid them maybe seven eight hundred dollars get this you know hundred dollar ninety dollar fare. So what they do is they let a company like Priceline or Hotwire, which is another company that does the same kind of thing, sell it in an opaque way, so that when the customer is buying the ticket, they don't know they're buying Delta, but more importantly, the customer when they're buying doesn't know they're getting Delta. 
So in fact, that business traveler who's trying to maximize their frequent flyer miles, who needs a specific time to get there, can't accept the vagaries of the opaque product, meaning I don't even know which airline I'm going to get on. I don't know if I'm going to connect or go nonstop. I don't even know what time of day I'm going to go on. And they can't accept that. So Delta's willing to sell the product that way at that price when they wouldn't sell the product that way on their own website or through a more transparent distributor like an Expedia or someone like that. It's a smart thing for airlines to do because it lets them fill more seats. The more seats they fill, the lower everybody's fare can be. And by filling more seats, they they do better for themselves and the airline's more efficient. But they need all these different ways to distribute their product to do that. And again, the revenue management team and the sales and distribution team within an airline make those decisions about not only what price do we set, but how many seats do we sell at that price and in which ways are we willing to merchandise those seats. Delta Flight 771, Ben, by the way, I just looked it up, goes from Orlando to Salt Lake City. So whoever (laughs) whoever guessed that wins the prize. I'm not sure what exactly they would want to come up with that next. Uh, Yeah, and and what's interesting, you must remember uh, when Priceline burst on the scene, kind of late 1990s, you would have been at US Airways, if I'm not mistaken, at that time. Right. Uh, h- how did airlines view that uh, back then? And and uh, and I'm and, and I'll admit I'm sort of leading the witness because because what I want to get to is sort of you know what's happened since then, which I don't think is necessarily what people would have thought. I think Priceline hasn't been as big of a deal for airlines, but it's been, a, and I'm saying Priceline also Hotwire, uh, it's been a very big deal for hotels and rental cars. But yeah, how, how was that viewed back then by airlines? Well, I think it was viewed as a as an opportunity and a threat both. And if you, uh, if you want to go back in history a bit to that time, uh, there was Travelocity, which was built by Sabre Corporation, which at one point was owned by American Airlines. And that was getting big share in the sort of traditional, the early online travel agent world. And the airlines banded together and said, we have to get in this business. And they created what they first called T2 for Travelocity 2, which became Orbitz. Orbitz. Yeah. And the airlines actually owned Orbitz as a way to compete. And they did the same thing with Priceline. The airlines got together and created Hotwire. And the fact that they got together and did that tells you that they they realized that this channel was legitimate, that it ran the risk of pushing fares down too much if it got too big, because they certainly didn't want to sell too many of their seats at the kind of prices that they would sell there. So that they felt that by by creating Hotwire, they would not only participate in the economics of, of the distribution side at that level, but they would also help be able to control the game somewhat in terms of how many seats were sold that way. You know, filling an empty seat with an opaque product is a great thing. If you end up buying new airplanes that can only be filled with those seats, then you run into a problem. Yeah, uh, I used Priceline to fly uh, only once. Uh, it was 19, I believe, ni- late 98 or early 99. I was living in South Texas in Laredo, and it was the last time I ever flew TWA, ended up being. I wanted to fly from down there to uh, Washington, D.C. to visit family from a Thursday to a Sunday. Uh, and and I, I put it in a low bid and then they accepted it. Uh, I wanted to fly really if I could have controlled it like Thursday morning to Sunday night. What I ended up getting because you couldn't pick the time was Thursday night to Sunday morning.
thing. And I sort of concluded, you know what? That's I, I lost kind of a day and a half of, of, of my trip. And I didn't find it to be, in the end, a good value. Whereas I've used Priceline and Hotwire quite a bit over the years to book hotel rooms and rental cars because I, I find with that, you know, the, the, the promise to me as a consumer is is for me acceptable in exchange for the savings. You know, I know with a hotel what area of the city I'll be in, whether I'm going to have a three four three star four star hotel or whatever. With a rental car, obviously, I know what time I'm going to pick up the car and when I have to return it. I just don't know whether I'm getting Avis or Hurt. And you know, I might not get get my loyalty points or something like that. Uh, and and uh, it, it is is that part of why Priceline and Hotwire, at least as far as I can see never got quite the traction that maybe people expected in terms of selling airline tickets. If in fact I'm correct that most people listening aren't booking many tickets, many airline tickets that way, even if they're using those services to do other things. And and I, I should note, by the way, when I'm saying Priceline, but I'm talking about the bidding side of Priceline. I realize Priceline also uh, nowadays has you know a, 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 a transparent online travel agency, which, which lots of people do use. Right. Well, there's two things here, Seth. Uh, first of all, the reason that you use and probably a lot of people use the opaque products for hotels and rental cars is it's just better as an opaque product than the airline. You may not know which hotel you're going to stay in, but you can know, but you can pick the number of stars of the hotel and you can pick the general area where it is and certainly the night you're going to stay there. Yeah. Right. So then you don't, you don't have your day short vacation like you talked about. They can't make me, when you they, they can't the make me check ticket. out at two in the morning from, from the hotel. No, right? that, all, that, that, all the important stuff is the same. Yeah. No, that's right. And it's the same with a rental car. You know, I still go to the same airport. I still pick up a car at the same time at the same airport. It's not like I could arrive in Orlando and say my rental car is over at Stan at Sanford, <laughs> right? It, it, it's still going to be right in the same airport. So maybe I maybe I get off the bus at a different stop or I go to a different counter, but I'm still getting the car at the same airport at the same time. So the the risk that what I don't know could really hurt me is really tiny when you're getting a hotel or a rental car compared to the airfare to the airline, and that's one of the reasons that I think that. The uh, the idea of opaque just works. So, so it's a that. decent deal for the company and for the consumer because Hertz gets to. I'm picking on Hertz. It could be any. Gets to have that. You, you know, gets to, to to rent that car at that price that it doesn't really want to be seen publicly renting the car, and you get to have the car. Uh, and, and, and both sides are pretty are pretty much fine with the arrangement. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing that's important to note, though, is that the whole idea of revenue management in an airline is that you're forecasting demand at all different price levels and if uh, and trying to make sure that you're offering the price levels that the highest price you can that'll actually fill the plane. And at most well-run airlines, the that process is nicely tied into the capacity planning department, in term, meaning the group that decides how many seats we're going to put in a market. And that whole world using big data, using modern data science, using better techniques and things has just gotten better and better over time. And so the need for airlines to sell the kind of fares that only the opaque product can fill has also gotten a lot smaller because they've gotten better about the way they apply seats to 
routes and the way they apply and the way they think about pricing and can manage pricing and the forecasting and technical abilities they have to do that. And, and just to, to be clear for anybody who's not as familiar as revenue management, when you talk about forecasting, uh, this involves looking at historical data. How did a certain flight uh, perform last year? Uh, overlaying that with you know any kind of special events, uh, the shifting holidays, you know, Easter falls on a different date each year, is the Super Bowl in town, all of those things. And and uh, coming up with with uh, an airline's best guess of what a flight is going to look like in terms of how much you can charge all the different people on board for uh, for tickets. That's right. And this is going to sound like a weird uh, analogy to make, but there's this uh, show on TV that my wife and I like Forensic Files because we like the uh, we like the science of it, and it's amazing to us that you know a case can be can turn on a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of evidence, a little speck of something or a little bug and where did that bug come from or a leaf and what plant did it come from? And um, that's what's happening in the revenue management world. So it's not only that last year we knew this, how, how many people flew on flight 771 from Orlando <laughs> to Salt Lake City. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but also the fact that four months out, I'm only booked at two and a half percent when I thought I was going to be booked at 2.3 percent. They can actually learn something from that today and what that might mean for where the flight's going to be out there. So they can start much earlier in the process. They can manage it much better. The whole idea of data science that affects all kinds of businesses and the way we're doing things is affecting the airline world here and they're just getting better at it. They're not great at it, but they're getting better at it. And so even small changes in booking gives the airline now information that they could have known before, but didn't know it. Now they yeah. know it. Well, do you have a question for us? Not you, Ben, our, our friends listening to us. I mean, uh, you could do it granted. You call 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. Or you can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com. That's questions, plural, at airlines, plural, confidential, airlines, confidential, all one word, Com. Well, up next, it's time to get angry at those evil airlines. Well, you don't have to get air- angry with them, but somebody did. It's fine or wine next on Airlines Confidential. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. Beginning our initial descent on today's show, I'm sorry to report there's no fine wine here. No, not on this ultra low cost podcast. There is, however, one of our favorite segments, which we call fine or wine. That's W H I N E. Uh, We listen to an actual customer complaint and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine. In other words, if the customer kind of has a point or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint for us. Yes, I do, Seth. This one says, I booked a ticket for a week from now and checked the itinerary on my phone. I was confused to see a ticket listed with a date for tomorrow, assumed it was my error, and accidentally canceled the ticket that I needed for a return flight the next day. I called customer service right away to explain the error, but there was nothing they could do. I don't think that's right. One wrong click of the mouse and you're out of your ticket. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, and I think what's relevant here uh, with this being in the U.S. uh, is that it's inside a week because – uh, until that point, if you, you can cancel a ticket for any reason within within 24 hours, but once you're inside a week before departure, if you book a ticket, it's it's final right away. So, uh, so what do you say, Ben? Uh, f- fine or wine? 
and why? I think that it's probably closer to a wine, but I don't want to call this person a whiner because I think they're, they're legitimately yeah, you upset. you got to feel for them. I mean, gosh. I, I, think, I think we have to recognize that in many parts of our life, we – we um, compromise because while most people do the right thing, we all have to change some so our life somewhat because some people choose not to do the right thing, yeah. right? And and so and this is a case of that. Years ago, airlines used to let customers you know book a ticket, then change the name on the ticket, for example. And they found that uh, somewhat unscrupulous um, travel providers would just buy a bunch of tickets when the prices were cheap. Then they'd mark them up when, uh, uh, as the flight got closer and sell them to other people, change the name, and the airlines would lose out mm-hmm. on that revenue. So they got rid of changing tickets. Security also now, you can't change the ticket because you know I can buy the ticket legitimately. I'm not on a no-fly list. Then I change it to someone who maybe shouldn't be on the airplane. And maybe that has a different process in terms of how it has yeah. to get caught. So there's a lot of things about that. The issue here is that this customer probably did do the right thing, but they got stuck by the fact that airlines don't like these kind of changes. And it's so close to departure, the cost of changing that would have left them with an empty seat that they probably would not have filled. That's why the Department of Transportation, when they created that 24-hour rule, which airlines universally hated, by the way, um, but they they created that rule. They even protected that inside seven day. That's the airline term for seven days for departures, inside seven day. They, could, they protected that because they realized it was so expensive for an airline to have to, you know, cancel for free a reservation made in that time because the likelihood of them reselling that ticket was so low and the fare they could reset that they might lose because of that would be quite high. And so I think that I understand why this this customer was angry, but I also think that they, you know, they realistically, they, they couldn't, the airline couldn't go through with this. I want to tell you a what I think is a, a an insightful story on this. Back at Spirit a number of years ago, we made a change to our website that we thought was very consumer friendly, and it was. Um, you At the time, you would go to the Spirit website and say, I want to leave on the first of the month and come back on the fifth of the month, and we would show you the fare to leave on the first and come back on the fifth. Sounds rational, right? And the change we made was to You'd ask for the first to the fifth, but we would show you ranges around that. So we'd show you two weeks before and after the first and two weeks before and after the fifth and show you the price points of every combination. And we thought that would be real easy for customers to maybe save some money because they may say, look, if I just came back on the sixth, I could save a hundred bucks. I might, they might be willing to do that. Or if I could leave a day early, maybe I'll save money or leave a day later. But what, um, Spirit also found out is that after that change, the number of complaints they got related to, you know, I booked a ticket, but realized I booked the wrong date. I need to change it. Those kind of complaints skyrocketed. And we realized what people were doing is they'd look at this calendar and say, okay, here's the cheapest fare on this calendar. I'm going to book that and then oh, call okay. the airline, tell them I made a mistake and maybe they'll let me take the trip I really <laughs> want to take. <laughs> well, 
Uh, and, and interesting too, by the way, that point you made before about uh, people are amazing. Um, uh, how inside seven days, how the DOT kind of balanced the consumer and the airline interest there. Because airlines, yeah, they said the world was going to end if that rule went into effect at all. And basically, uh, the government said, well, outside seven days, the consumer benefit is more important. But inside seven days, uh, the airline, uh, yeah, you kind of have a point there. Uh, the, the, a, a lot of harm there uh, to the airlines. Well, this show is now on final approach, so please ensure your trade tables are in their upright and locked position, and I know you will want to fasten your seatbelt for this final story. American football fans will certainly remember Randy Moss, the Hall of Fame wide receiver who played for the Vikings, Patriots, and others. Uh, Now he's an analyst for ESPN. Uh, Well, over the weekend, he was supposed to fly to ESPN headquarters in Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, He took a nap on the flight and instead ended up in Bristol, Tennessee. That's how mainstream media reported the story. Now, Ben, I listened carefully to Moss's recounted his story, uh, and I think he was actually supposed to fly on a private plane to Hartford. That's the closest airport to Bristol. Somebody probably said he's going to Bristol as ESPN's headquarters is kind of colloquially known in the the TV business, and then somebody else took it literally, and it all ended up with a a pilot filing a flight plan to what's called Tri-Cities Airport serving Bristol, Tennessee, and other towns in northeastern Tennessee and southwestern uh, Virginia. And Ben, this really happens at airlines. There are people who, uh, who who mean to go to San Jose, Costa Rica, and they end up in San Jose, California. It really happens, doesn't it? Well, no one, no one's gonna, no one's gonna cry a lot of tears for Randy Moss flying his <laughs> private plane. But, uh, but those things did, those things do happen. I remember when I worked at Northwest Airlines. Every once in a while, we would hear about a customer who got off the plane in Rochester, New York, and was surprised they couldn't find the Mayo Clinic because they Rochester, were wanted to Minnesota. go to Rochester, Minnesota. And, and Northwest flew to both cities, and that happened once in a while. Um, they, those things happen, if, and there was a time. Long ago, when a Delta plane even landed at the wrong airport in Tennessee, yeah. if you remember that one, <laughs> they landed at Lexington. They were going to Frankfurt or the other way around, one of those two. Um, but these these things happen. It's kind of funny. In this case, I'm sure Randy Moss dealt with it. The funny part about his thing is that he fell asleep. Like, had he stayed awake, yeah. would he have realized he was going to Tennessee <laughs> instead of Hartford? Exactly. <laughs> and he did make it there in time for the uh, the the Sunday morning pregame football show. (laughs) So all's well that ends well. Well, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.